bitch. Yeah, uh, yeah, bitch. Uh, yeah, uh, why? Yeah, fuck a pistol, bitch. I get my pencil blocking. I'm a writer, never been a fan of violence. Unless of course you fucking with my brother Skinny me, go from zero to a hundred When we mobbing and we mobbing This sound like some wool shit Listen to my new shit, this shit sound like some rude shit Son of young bulls for pissing in the pool shit Son of young bulls on some taking kids at school Good evening ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Bobcast with you as always is Bob Live from the lounge, staring at the Ouija board Today's guest is none other than the rapper Michael Stewart And Mike, you prefer to be called Mike Stew or Mike Stewart? Everybody calls me Mike Stu. All right, Mike Stu's the name we're going to go with. I just uh, listened to some of your music this morning. i got to say I'm very impressed. Uh, you won recently um, a freestyle battle competition, but we're going to get to that later. What I want to know right now is, Mike, who, like, when you were growing up, like, what posters were on your walls? What CDs were you listening to? Who inspired you to become Mike Stu? My earliest influences of hip-hop would probably be... Uh, I remember DMX and Jay-Z at a really young age. I was probably like 10 years old when I got this um, mixtape from the source. And uh, I think DMX Party Up was on it. And I think uh, Jay-Z's Heart Life was on it. And the group, and Erica Badu, uh, Act 2 was on it. I think that was the name of the record. Um, and the other, I just remember those three songs really sticking out in terms of like, me realizing that I like hip hop, you know. And when did you realize that you possessed the skills of freestyle and being a lyricist? Never mind. Um, let me explain what it was. This week, he came over with stuff that he wrote to an instrumental he found online. And uh, I had been rapping before that, but hearing Dustin rap was the first time I realized that I could actually do it as a hobby, you know. I had yep. to put together verses and songs. But, um, I guess a few years before I ever wrote anything, I started freestyling um, with a couple guys that moved out to... I'm actually not from Manny, I'm from Burris, Oh, um, that's right. Scooter to, Scooter's our friend. We're actually... The, uh, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast and how the worlds have been thrown together is that on Friday, December 26th at the Grape Room, Pocket Dial, uh, a live Bobcast show uh, with Gorgeous Porch and Mike Stew and a punk rock band called No Outlet... It's going down this Friday. starts at 9 p.m. But uh, Scooter told me you were from Maniac. But yeah, I'm familiar with the Royersford area. Actually, I was just up there. I was by the dump the other day. But um, I was by the dump. Like I was like passing through Royersford, like uh, going up. Yeah, I saw like uh, yeah. yeah, I was by this like real ominous building called Saint Gabe's School. I was like, man, that looks like a straight up movie set. But look, getting back to uh, yeah, your inspirations. By all the time as kids looking at that man, that building was always so intimidating. So intimidating. Did you ever see the movie Toy Soldiers? Did you ever see the movie Toy Soldiers? No, I never have. Oh, dude, there's this movie. It's like from the early 90s with uh, Sean Astin in it. And it's about a private school like that where terrorists come and they hold the kids hostage. It's one of my all-time favorites. But one of the things I want to ask you is, two of your main inspirations growing up, DMX, Jay-Z, these two artists have distinguishedly two different types of careers right now. Jay-Z, I guess he's on top of the world. DMX, whom I also enjoyed his music, he really didn't like become the the same type of cultural icon that Jay-Z became. Do you have any insight as to why you think that happened? I think that's really the million-dollar question, or, you know, in Jay-Z's uh, case, the half-a-billion-dollar question. Yeah, right. Um, Jay-Z 
anomaly in the way he was able to continue to stay relevant. And um, I think at the heart of it all, it really does have to do with him doing whatever he had to do to really take care of himself. You know, in the case of DMX being on the tabloids, that's uh, very much drug-induced, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that fame really it really pollutes your mind, and Jay-Z was able to center himself over and over again. Um, even if he hadn't humbled himself, he was able to center himself and take care of himself, you know, look forward throughout his career. You know, I always wanted to see DMX make a big comeback. You know what I mean? Like he, I mean, everybody was listening to his stuff in the late '90s, and then he just kind of—I mean, the Rough Riders, everyone just kind of disappeared. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think there was a lot of kind um, bad business decisions. You know, um, young guys with a lot of money living a lifestyle they probably dreamed about their whole life. You know, it's difficult to leverage that situation um, in a you know, in a thoughtful way when you're partying that hard, you know, and you're doing it that big. And I think a lot of those guys uh, ruined their deals, and then a lot of them probably fell victim to changes in the industry. Yeah, Jay-Z I, I, was I able agree. To, whatever, whatever pop sound came out, Jay-Z was able to steal it and make a Jay-Z record that was at the top of that. Now, you know what I mean? Whatever the trend is, he was able to execute a Jay-Z record that was distinctly a Jay-Z record using whatever sound was hot at the time. He did it over and over again through the decades, you know? He did. Where I, I think one the of the... You have one of his first albums, Reasonable Doubt, mm-hmm. is competitive with the classics of the 90s. Definitely. And then, late 2000, um, when people started, when Beats started to knock a slightly different way, he came out with Hard Knock Life and um, Hey Poppy, which were two massive records. That I, as a ten-year-old suburban white kid, was listening to those records. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That he made, and you're talking about ten years old, and but the late '90s, early 2000s, they were massive records. And then again and again, he was able to execute whatever the sound of the day was and bring it under the Jay Z umbrella in a thoughtful way. You know, I think along the way, he did more than more than some of his contemporaries. He took care of himself and he looked forward. Um, as a businessman and as a brand, which, you know, that's where most of his criticism comes from. People call him a sellout, but at the end of the day, he did survive 30-some years now as an MC at the top of his game. Pretty much, yeah. I think one of the, the cultural movements at the time was when 99 Problems came out and he was able to connect with several different audiences at once. So oh, yeah. yeah. He had uh, Rick Rubin back again. And I have, you know, Chili Peppers and... Uh, and what should we call it? Beastie Boys fame backing it. Um, and the sound was very much Beastie Boys, like classic Rick Rubin, mm-hmm. rock rap sound. There's a massive record again, and he did it again every five years, you know, right when he needed it, he did it again. And I think that, that more than anything, is what it comes down to, is just staying sharp creatively. Yeah, I... I, I reinventing yourself. One of the things I'd like to touch upon is the fact that you mentioned that you were... a 10-year-old suburban white kid and you're listening to this music and you're feeling the inspiration probably about, I guess, five, it's about seven, eight years before you start listening to DMX and uh, like Jay-Z. I was listening to uh, Nirvana and then when Kurt Cobain uh, committed suicide, I couldn't listen to rock and roll music at all. I couldn't listen to punk rock. I couldn't listen to anything. And the music that I turned to was hip-hop. So I was able to find huge musical inspiration. I played the bass guitar because of bands like Tribe Called Quest the Wu-Tang Clan. So yeah, we share right. a kinship that way. But um, can you tell me about 
when you're growing up after, I mean, once you enter your adolescent years, the first time you ever performed in front of some people? Yeah, I think my, uh, my performance, the way I broke the ice, the live performance was at a coffee shop, open mic, um, in Phoenixville, PA. It's a place called Steel City. Yeah, I played there they once. Still have open mics. Yeah. Yeah, they have a lot of, a lot of touring acts come through and a lot of local acts make their way there at one point or another. But, um, being the only hip hop act, and probably one of the only hip hop acts they've ever seen, I was foreign to them. And being my first stage of all time, they were foreign to me. So I was able to kind of, uh, I was able to kind of have fun with it and connect with people, I think in a way that's different than if my first, if my first show would have been, um, a hip hop show, you know? Yeah. I was, I was more conscious of, um, playing records playing a record for a foreign crowd and selling the record the way I wanted to sell it rather than maybe appeasing to a hip-hop crowd. And so that was kind of a cool experience. And then, you know, I came to the city and just got involved in everything I could when I was 17. And uh, I, I rocked so many shows from like 09 to like 2011 that will be, you know, forgotten by history, just paying my dues and cutting my teeth in a warehouse party, frat party, uh, non-profit events, hundreds of shows over those few years. And, and uh, that's where I developed my skills on stage. Today, how would you describe your uh, your music? Um, I'd say, you know, for anyone who's been listening, um, it's more honest and visceral than ever, and definitely um, more experimental, uh, sonically, because I've been recording a lot more than ever in the last year and a half. Um, but for someone who hasn't heard my music before, you're going to immediately recognize that it's hip-hop, it bumps like hip-hop, it smacks like hip-hop, and um, most people tend to identify me as like a lyricist or an MC, um, because my wordplay is dense, my lyrics are dense, and my material tends to be kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. Recently you recorded, uh, I believe, with uh, THC? Oh yeah, that was awesome, uh, last summer I was out in LA recording with THC. And for the Bobcast listeners out there, that's a, a producer, producing team that uh, has worked with Kendrick Lamar, I believe. Yeah, they worked with Kendrick Lamar, Schoolboy Q, and ASAP Rocky. Or ASAP, yeah, ASAP Rocky. Mm-hmm. And um, their hit records are Mad City off of Kendrick's uh, debut album, uh, Green Kid Mad City. And they produced College Green, which is Schoolboy Q's lead single, his biggest radio hit. So they're pretty... Like their powerhouse production duos in Compton. And uh, can you describe your experience? Like, basically, were you uh, laying down tracks per day, or basically, were they making beats in the studio? Um, they brought in they brought in dozens of demos for me to listen to and pick from. And um, I tried. We were only there for three days. We we're in and out. I had three eight-hour studio sessions in a row, and we tried out two records. Um, before we found the third record on the second day. And what happened was it was just a beat and a sample, you know, a drum beat and a sample. And as I was writing my lyrics and recording, they were, they were doing more production and building the production around my performance. And um, it was a really organic process, and I actually learned a lot about making records through working with them under such a short time span, you know? Because mm-hmm. I was in L.A. and I had to catch my flight, so we had to produce the record. And by the end of it, we came out with, you know, what is really a jam. It's a huge record, but um, 
Red Bull hadn't yet released it. But the experience there was awesome, man. I felt like they were writing while I was writing. And we, we met right in the middle on the sound. So it was really dope. That's the way to do it. I'm a big fan of uh, production that doesn't, like, I, I myself, I think getting in the studio and getting the best performance possible on tape is the way to go rather than to draw it out and work on for something for like six to eight months. I have no idea why record companies give young bands like $200,000. Like I can make an album off of like what, 5,000 bucks, you know what I mean? Like the best album you ever heard. But um, can you talk a little bit about being like an artist in today's world and like how you view the musical industry at this moment? Yeah, I mean, um, I actually just had a conversation about this the other day with a good friend of mine. Um, I feel like we're in a unique position right now. Uh, whereas artists, we're, let's start as people, you know, as people, the way we consume information in 2014 is at an all-time high. You know, an all-time high in terms of the amount of information we're exposed to on a daily basis. From your radio to your phone to your computer, we're constantly plugged in, constantly bombarded with information. And a lot of the mediums through which you get all of your entertainment are, are now coming together in a way where, um, as musicians, we're no longer competing with musicians anymore. I believe as musicians, we're competing with cat videos, <laughs> we're competing with Vine, we're competing with a Twitter scroll, we're competing with police brutality, all the things you see on your different timelines all day that are being pushed um, social media, which is our, you know, our dominant avenue for reaching people, mm-hmm. we're competing with all that information. So, because you get your music from the same place you get your movies. Do you follow? Yeah, totally. And you get your movies from the same place you get your news. It's all, it's all, so they thought the internet was going to level the playing field for the indie guy, but really what it did was drown the indie guy in stories more than ever. Completely. Because we're consuming so much information. So now we're in a peculiar position, I think, in 2014, where celebrity is slowly dying, and alternatives are becoming um, just as viable as major. But you still have that major label stronghold on a lot of the medium, where with big money behind you, you can you can definitely purchase celebrity in this day and age. I think it's becoming harder to be an internet anomaly for more than a week, or to build a stable. Um, online fan base it's becoming harder because everybody's got their hands on it now yeah so we're in an interesting place and it's a, you know it's about as um, liberating as it is binding you know because now you can I'm, I'm looking for to repurpose my music and bring, bring a musical experience to people in different ways everything from um, visual artists and design to obviously video which is really like your music video is now what the single used to be pretty um, much yeah it's going to be competing today. Um, and also, I think what I'm, what I'm looking at personally is uh, a revert back to live interaction with your fan base and with your market. I think that touring now is more important than ever. Mm-hmm. I think that playing live now is more important than ever because those are avenues where you don't have to compete with all of the noise of the massive media and social media, you know, uh, signals. Will be, that are being broadcast constantly. In a live atmosphere, you can reach out and touch the performer. And when you're touring, you're coming to someone else's home and bringing them a slice of you know, what you love and where you're from. So I think that's the avenue where we have to compete now because I think uh, competing, with, competing with the infinite scroll that is social media 
and you know the billion videos that are YouTube is no longer viable in a way that we imagine it would be. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you 100. percent Infinite Scroll would be a good name for a single, and you could talk all about how social media has changed the game. Uh, one of the things I that uh, I noticed when I was scrolling through the infinite search bar on the, the internet this morning was that you had won a Red Bull competition for freestyle. Uh, can you talk a little bit a little bit about that? Yeah, um, that was a, a few years ago. I got involved with the hip hop competition, uh, freestyle competition uh, through Red Bull, um, and I met some people in Red Bull Philly, and I was working with them while I was in college hosting events and um, finding different ways to collaborate in the Philly area. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had this national competition come through the pipeline and they just put me up for it because of all the work I was doing in the market for hip-hop and for Red Bull. And um, I, I, I signed up for the competition and they brought in eight of who they deemed the best uh, battle rappers in the Philly area mm-hmm. And... I beat three of those guys in three rounds. I won all three rounds, and um, they flew me down to Atlanta to battle and see from eight different cities who went through the same process in their city. Talk about that. What was it like performing uh, in front of an Atlanta crowd? Uh, The crowd in Atlanta was amazing um, because um, there were no MCs from Atlanta in the competition. So uh-huh. the crowd was packed out to see something that they weren't intimately related with, and I feel like they gave a much more honest response than the local crowd in Philly, and uh, there was like a Detroit, I think there was a Chicago. The Atlanta crowd was, nobody knew really what was going on. It was marketed in Atlanta, but there wasn't an Atlanta artist in it. Mm-hmm. And it was bananas, man. They packed it wall to wall. Um and the energy in the building was unreal. They had David Banner uh, judging. They had Big Crit judging. DJ Premier was a judge. Fonte from uh, Little Brother was one of the hosts. And Ninth Wonder was the house DJ. Mm-hmm. There were these MCs from all over the country going head-to-head, uh, really freestyling because they gave us goals. We had to use certain words and images that they showed us during our verse. We had to throw them into our verse. So wait, so... We were so... really freestyling. Excuse me. So, so they were showing images on a screen, and you had to, you had to impro- improvise from what you were looking at. Yeah, they were actually showing us images. Tell us uh, some of the things they were showing you. Oh, like random stuff, like fire hydrants, and cheeseburgers, and ladders, and like a wrench. You know what I mean? And we had a beat playing in the back, so it was like it was really a slice of like some real hip hop um, compared to you know the more prepared, rehearsed, written battles. Did you see today? That's a more popular format today. Yeah, I would much. I'd much rather would see something like that, like a Mad Lib kind of performance where it's just completely off the top of your head. Yeah, Yeah, I I find that freestyle, the art of freestyle. A lot of people claim to be freestyle artists, but as you just mentioned, there they're coming. They're coming out. They they approach it with you know pre written material that they you know push off as being. Freestyle, the true art of freestyle is something that's been going on for years. So, yeah, I was uh, pleased to see those videos. I also watched a, a video where you talked about the art of the 16 bars and uh-huh. just the overall writing, you know, experience. So basically, I mean, I know for me, I got to have like certain elements, like while I'm, you know, writing something, I have to be inspired by something. 
Well, like talk about like your writing process. What what do you do? I mean, do you go into a room, lock yourself in there, or do you go out and like you know experience, you know, socialization between people? Tell uh, the Bobcast listeners what Mike Stew processes his information with. Um, my process definitely changes um, project to project, day to day. But um, I guess in the last six or eight months, I've been uh, actually the day that I get a beat, if I like it. I'll turn it off and wait until I get home. And um, I have a studio in my house. Mm-hmm. And I've been I've been recording freestyles and cutting and splicing the freestyles together. And then memorizing the freestyle as a verse. You know, I'll take the best part. I'll write some, some things to smooth it over. Memorize that and re-record the verse later. Um, and that's because I've been trying to capture... I've been really trying to capture the rhythmic element of the freestyle where you're actually pivoting off of the rhythm mm-hmm. um, and you're actually recreating a groove over and over again just because it feels right in the moment so I've been trying to capture that element and um, I've also been trying to kind of liberate myself from some of the bad habits I have when I'm writing where I'll get obsessed with the rhyme scheme or I'll get obsessed with the thought and then I'll, I'll chew up maybe four bars or eight bars of a verse just trying to work out this one thought because I have the pen and the time to think about it. I've been trying to get rid of all the fluff yeah. and capture the hottest parts of my first impression of a record. Um, so that the material I'll be releasing in 2015, that was very much the process for it. Talk and about then, the... Um, you know, um, we go back and we, we rework on we work on the musical part after that. But for my, for my uh, verses... Uh, I know I some artists, they, uh, they talk about the importance of the hook. How do you feel about the hook? Does that come first, second, third... How do you feel about it? I think it, it can come at any time. And uh, uh, this actually idea for music structure right now goes back to my idea for how we're, we're being interpreted and how people interpret information now. Um, three three verses, three 16-bar verses and an 8-bar hook was your format for 10 years of rap. Uh, rap music, you were be lucky. So, Mike, tell the Bobcast listeners what they can expect in 2015 with new music. We're uh, releasing Sam. Sam Live has been a producer I've worked with closely for a few years now. Over the last year, he and I, we recorded something like 60 demos, 60 or 70 demos, uh, you know, between one-bar verses and then records that we finished but we're not necessarily in love with. Um, We're going to be releasing all that material as B-side on my SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Mike Stewart Music. Mm-hmm. Um, weekly, bi-weekly at different times, but it's going to be a steady stream of that content. Because while I don't feel like I want to give it a large marketing push, um, I do feel like all that should should be heard. By, like, I want my fan base and my listeners to hear that process. So when I go out and push singles, they have context for the new singles. Um, so 
there'll be a steady stream of content on social media and on my website, MikeStewartMusic.com. And then uh, my first single of 2015, official single, is All Black Chuck. Um, it's just a song about how much I love Chuck Taylor. It's a very simple song. But that dropped January, probably the second week of January. And we had a visual shot and wrapped up for that as well. So that will be available on all major uh, online well, uh, I gotta, I gotta say, I, I enjoyed uh, going through your catalog this morning. I'm definitely looking forward to the show this Friday, December 26th at the Grape Room. Scooter put us in touch, and uh, I look forward to uh, working with you this Friday, putting on a show for these people. Look forward to hearing the music, and uh, I appreciate you coming here on the Bobcast. And in the future, uh, I'd like to. Uh, work on a couple different ideas with you. So uh, stay tuned, Bobcast listeners. Mike, uh, thanks very much for being on the show. Sure, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to take a listen to one of your tracks right here. I do believe this is uh, named after a Japanese monster, if I'm not mistaken. It is. This is the original Godzilla. The original Japanese film was called Gojira. Okay, and this is uh, Mike Stew on the Bobcast. <laughs> Motherfuckers, it's Gojira Lucid dreams of uh, a succubus Don't fear her Daydreams of not being a hand-me-down clothes wearer I grow weary as the evils grow nearer I wear an all-black cloak and slip the throat of the demonic reflection inside the coke mirror When times are tough, I keep my bros nearer And I'm far from famous, but everybody thinks I'm famous 50% of my city knows what my name is That's some pressure that could cross you even though it's weightless Without the self-inflicted suffering, I wouldn't know what pain is But look how beautiful the picture that I painted They say your highness is a heinous ignoramus That my outlook is skewed and jaded Point them out, who the haters? Who the hottest spitters? Name them and I'll flame them Line them up in alphabetical order, slaughter remain a body bag of rapper, grab a thermos Take a walk to the taxidermist And hang them from my studio So they can watch me craft my verses Master plan, craft a calculator Crowd captivator, master of the alphabet Out to make a killing Doubts are faded, the diabolical plan Plot and do libel to follow you home Follow restraining order and follow through my knock will fuck up your knot, make your hair stand at attention in the follicles. Particle science can't describe it in articles. Fully automatic, fully audible. I cool slow through your neighborhood like bam bam bang on my chest, screaming yabba dabba doo. Clubbing my hand, man, the one man band, man. American bandstand, fuck shit stack. Yam 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 yam. A Philadelphia troll, trolling the city with Philadelphia soul, motherfucker. Alright, right, I'm done. I'm not rhyming anymore. Yeah, let's go, Jimmy. Yeah. Oh, what's Gucci?